Hi, this is Michael Nava, and you're listening to the Superlit Podcast with Brendan Patrick. Hey everyone, my name is Brandon Patrick. I have, uh, it's Michael Nava, right? Your last name is Nava. I'm not mispronouncing yes. that. Okay, cool. I'm uh, very good at mispronouncing everyone's names. But um, you're listening to the Superlit Podcast, and the Superlit Podcast is a bi weekly podcast pertaining to books about the LGBT community. And um, I am very excited to finally get to talk to you. Thanks. And um, I just want to tell you that your podcast is a real service to the community. And um, thank you for your, thank you for doing it. I, I know podcasts are kind of a pain, so um, I appreciate it. Thank you for saying that. Uh, yeah, the uh, this kind of started as a, like um, I I wanted to like kind of see if there was something I could do with my free time because I wasn't driving at the time, and I started <laughs> reading a lot of books instead of just like sitting playing on my phone like I do now. Uh, <laughs> and um, I started reading a lot of queer books and I wanted to try my hand at you like doing a podcast and it's we're three years in now yeah and you've had some great people I mean I saw um, the requeered Alexander Inglis and mm-hmm. uh, Ben Science you did a podcast with him so that's great yeah but uh, yeah so we are um we're talking about your new book in the Henry. It's like a series of books uh, with a character named Henry Rios, and uh, the book we're talking about is called Carved in Bone. And so, when this book came out last year, uh, it came out on October first, yes, of last year. Awesome. Yeah, I. Uh, so it's the first uh, like new book in the Henry Rios uh, series in two decades. I see. Yeah, the last one was published in 2000, so it's been almost um, 20 years since oh I uh, read about Henry. I know, I, probably you were, what were you, a toddler back then? <laughs> That's kind of you to say. I was, um, depending on like what, uh, what month it was, um, I was, I want to say 10, because uh, I was born in 1990, so I'm like, kind of like a, I guess a... <laughs> I would have been like old enough to like know about your books, but I probably admittedly <laughs> would have avoided them because yeah. I knew I was gay and I didn't want anyone else to know. And God forbid I read something that was queer. You knew when you were 10 years old. I, you know, it's funny. I knew for a long time and I didn't like know how to talk about it. And also right. everyone around me and my family was like, yeah, this, this kid is very clearly queer and never said anything to me about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> how dare they not tell me? Adults, adults could tell. Really, it's so interesting, you know. Yeah. So, to to start your the questions for you, um, tell I. So I didn't know how long you had been doing this book. So I when I read the back, because uh, I have the paperback <laughs> edition, um, I saw that it was like in two decades, and I was like, okay, how long have these? How long have you been writing the Henry books? So the first one actually appeared before you were born in 1986. Mm-hmm. And so the original um, seven were written between 1986 and 2000. Um, and they came out about every two years. Wow. So, so that was, uh, you know, there was a real boom in, um, in gay and and lesbian literature in the 90s, uh, partly propelled by AIDS, um, and also because big publishing decided that there was this huge untapped audience that they could sell books to. So a lot of us uh, got our start between like 88 and you know 94. And then the publishers discovered 
they couldn't sell all that many books, so they dropped us. Yeah, because um, when I was talking to, um, I'm forgetting their names right now, but the the people who are, who um, do the requeered tales, listening to like the stories about like the different authors that they have helped republish. Um, and like the family stories about how they never thought they would get to see their like siblings or husbands like names on like a like a, an actual physical copy of a book again. Um, it's interesting to think that in my time, I remember when I was younger, when I was like trying to figure out like more things, I was afraid of looking into queer books, but I couldn't really find any that like uh, I guess at my public library there wasn't like any in the YA section, which is like what I always gravitated towards. But, uh-huh. but to hear that like there were you know t- seven books floating around in my periphery that I could have found, like it's it's awesome. Yeah, the YA market for queer literature that's pretty recent because you know um, back in the day uh, we were gay men particularly we were all demonizes um, child molesters and mm-hmm. predators and so you know there was publishers weren't going to touch uh, YA books aimed at gay kids um, until pretty recently yeah it's uh, it's definitely a newer thing and there's definitely a huge boom in that market but it's it's really cool to see that there is like a whole legacy of books especially that you know from you as well um, of book that you know queer like mysteries that are you know i'm starting to really get into them uh one of the ones that i I did with requeered was uh a mystery that took place on a college campus and i guess that kind of like opened up the door to like oh wait queer mysteries exist i i want to start reading these oh that must have been one of lev Raphael's books yes oh my god it was so good i love that you knew just from me saying that Oh, I, I know, love. You know, we're, we're veterans together, mm-hmm. so. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, what what made you want to, um, like, how did Henry come to you? So, I mean, you know, like you, I realized I was quite a fairly early age. I was 12. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up in a working class Mexican-American neighborhood in Sacramento, California. And there was literally no one I could talk to about this Uh you know, in 19, um, whenever it was, <laughs> 1970. And so um, I started writing. And uh, I wrote, I was actually a poet until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And then I went, I went to law school and um, the poetry went away. And I wanted to keep writing. So I thought, oh, I'll write a novel. And I always, I'd lo- I love mysteries, and the reason that I love them is because, like, the detective hero in the classical American mystery, he, and it's, it was always a he, he's like an outsider. Yeah. And he's, out, he's outside of respectable society, and, and people are sort of are contemptuous of him, but when they have problems, he's the guys they, they go to. And I thought, you know, there are a lot of parallels between my experience as a gay man in the 1970s and 80s, and that literary character of the detective so that really got me thinking well maybe i can use mysteries as a vehicle to explore what it's like to be you know gay what it's like to be an outsider in a society that that treats you with contempt when you yourself know that you're you know a decent honorable person i never really i never thought of that until you just said it that's actually very interesting yeah, that was kind of my motivating, um, that was my motivation, really. And the more deeply I got into this series, the more clearly I saw that, yeah, that's actually a legitimate analogy. And uh, the mystery genre is particularly suited for outsider writers. So, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed Henry. I, I guess uh, there's a lot about him I don't know, uh, especially since this is book eight, right? So it's the eighth book I've written, but it's actually the second book in the series. I went back and filled in this chronological gap mm-hmm. uh, that was missing when I when I wrote the original books. So yeah, it, it's the second book in the series. Um, the first book is called Lay Your Sleeping Head. Yeah, because I uh, I I now now I need to know more about Henry, and now I have to read the other books about him, um, especially since like the. There's a part in the book, um, 
I try not to do spoilers here, but the one um, when he goes back to his like ex's apartment. Uh huh. Like that was so interesting, and I was like, "Wait, is this going to be explained in this book?" And oh yeah. Because I hadn't read the first one, I'm like, "Oh wait, now I now I have to read well, number one." You don't even have to read it. You can listen to the podcast. Oh yeah, you know it's funny. That's actually one of my questions on here. I saw that you're doing a podcast for it. So I did an 18 episode audio drama that adapted the first novel into this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I hired that, and this is why I know podcasts are difficult to do. I mean, I hired actors, I hired a sound engineer, I hired a composer to write original music and sound effects. So we adapted the entire first novel into this podcast, which is called the Henry Rios Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was. It was an incredible amount of work. It was just really gratifying to work with the actors and all these creative people because writers work alone. Mm. Um, I don't think I'm going to continue it because Audible, the audiobook people, they just bought all the books, turned them into audiobooks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they're actually they're recording them even as we speak because I keep getting these these texts from the guy who's narrating them. They'll say, how do you pronounce this word? And you know, <laughs> what does this mean? So... We're texting back and forth as he's in the studio, but I. But you know, part of my deal with them is I can't really a non non compete clause, so I can't do anything that might compete with the audiobook. So I don't think I can continue the uh, podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, it stinks that you can't continue it, but it's it's cool that um, you're you're you got the books on Audible though, because that that'll open up uh, you know the realm to my co-host usually uh, Sophie. She isn't big on like. A, she doesn't really have time to read like physical copies of books and her joke is that she can't read uh and she likes people reading to her so uh she usually reads things uh, listens to things through audible so it opens up a door that you know didn't exist before yeah i mean audio books are becoming an increasingly big market mm-hmm. driven in part by you know millennials who don't who are just accustomed to like not reading but listening and then they're on the opposite and they're like old boomers who like they can't the print's too small god damn it so uh, <laughs> so they want they want to be read to also so it's increasingly a large part of the book market i hope that uh print never becomes too small for me because i'm i'm the person that likes physical copies of books um me too. Uh, yeah it's just I, I don't know what it is i think it's like i'm a very like tactile person so like having uh, like a thing in my hands, like I handle it much better than someone just like saying things to me. Well, you know, listening is kind of a passive activity, but reading really engages your imagination. I mean, reading engages you like no other medium. Oh yeah, uh, and so that's I'm I'm habituated to reading. I I love I I read two or three books a week. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I literally, uh, so like I said before, I work in retail and the idea of having like time to like read, cause I can't obviously can't read while I'm on the floor. So it takes out a big chunk of my day, but I try to read on my break. And I remember I pulled your book out of my bag and I was reading it. And in the first like couple of pages, uh, Billy and it's Marco, right? Yeah. Marco, right. uh, Billy and Marco are having a moment and, um, my manager like walked in and she's talking to me about something and I was like, Oh, hold this page for me. So she looks down at it and her like eyes get really big. And I was like, what's happening? Cause I literally just started reading it and she's like, I'm not going to tell you what's said on this page. I want you to see it. So I was like, okay. And she's like, this is really like sexual. And I was like, I normally don't like get to read, I guess, more adult books, um, uh-huh. for the podcast. Cause we do a lot of YA and the last book that we just read was like full of like very flowery blowjobs. Yeah. And this one was very much <laughs> it was an adult novel. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it has a lot of sex in it, but you know, um it's not gratuitous. I mean, you know, who people have sex with, how they have sex and what they're thinking about as they're having sex. Mm-hmm. That tells you a lot about, you know, a person's character. Yeah. So I use it in this book to, like there's one scene, we won't give away spoilers, where basically Billy is, I mean, it's kind of a date rape, you know? Yeah. 
but he doesn't really have the language. He knows he's uncomfortable and he doesn't like it. Mm-hmm. But because it happens in the past, he doesn't really have the language to describe what happened to him. Yeah. But the reader knows. The reader knows that this is like not a good experience for him. Yeah, and it's funny because when I was reading it, that particular scene, um, I was reading. I was like, "Oh, this this sounds like it'll be a good." And then it immediately like takes the turn, and you're like, "Oh no." Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's. Billy's character was really interesting because um, he he really gets caught in the act, and then you know, built like goes somewhere else and learns to be a little a little bit different of a person. But there's so much um, shame within Billy's character, um, yeah. which it, it's interesting because you go back and forth between um, Henry and Billy, and like the, I guess the past and present. And it was interesting because something will happen while Henry is investigating, and you're like, "Huh, I want like I wonder about that." And the next part will be Billy, and it'll further explain it. And it was really interesting to go back and forth between the two while Henry is, you know, trying to figure out who Billy was and to do a very thorough job of investigating, which I really loved. Right, and Rios Henry realizes that in some way he and Billy are very much alike, but they mm-hmm. took they took different turns. Yeah. I actually, I had a, I had a note here um, that said like that uh, Billy and Henry are very similar, but I feel like Henry doesn't necessarily like want to admit the similarities. Yeah, I, I mean, I think because he feels really, he feels that Billy's story is a tragic one, and he feels for him it was a near miss. Mm-hmm. You know, I could have been that person, so you know, maybe that's why he pulls away a little bit. Yeah, know, not wanting to admit how just exactly how close the parallels were exactly and it was uh it was i think that's what made the like the back and forth so interesting is because as you read more into the book you see that henry is like it's not like he's investigating an alternate universe of himself but it's almost like that right i mean i I really like books that like give you different perspectives on the same story Mm mm-hmm um, and so, I mean, I think that that really enriches the experience. And, you know, it's it's fun, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I, I really, I wanted to, I wanted to do that in this book. Have you done that in the other um, Henry books? No, the other Henry books are pretty straightforward first person. It's just Henry narrating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for this book, you know, I just, I, because, you know, this is a craft issue, but in first person, you know, you, you can't have known what Billy was thinking. Um, so, and I wanted Bill to tell his own story. So that's why I use this particular structure. Yeah, because uh, I think I think if uh, Billy's story hadn't been, t- it, it would be a very different story. Um, and it, I, I think it was integral to, especially to Henry, uh, to have that story be part of his story as well. Um, yeah. And it, it also helps with the, I think with the mystery too, because you're, you're learning more and Henry's also learning more. So it's almost like you're there with Henry figuring these things out. Exactly. You're discovering them as Henry does at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you kind of know in some ways things he doesn't know um, because of the Billy chapters. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I like to challenge myself as a writer. <laughs> I was going to say, is, is it is it was it more difficult to write like that versus the way that you've written before for the other books? Uh, it was definitely more complicated. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, between so between two thousand and this book, I did publish another novel. It was an historical novel called The City of Palaces, mm-hmm. which is set in Mexico City just before the 1910 revolution. Mm-hmm. And that book is written in third person. And and I really, I taught myself how to write in third person because all the Rios books were just first person where Henry's narrating it. And having learned that skill, um, I, I wanted to try to use it in the Rios books. Mm. So, but yeah, it's it's difficult to juggle those two kinds of um, perspectives. Yeah, because uh, the I, I've read a lot of first person books, and then when like a third 
first-person book is thrown in, like, after having read so many first-person, it's almost like I'm like, wait, what am I reading? Like, I have to relearn how to read. And then uh, I like uh, more first-person, I guess. Um, Just for me, it's easier. Um, So I can imagine uh, having gone from, like, first-person writing to third-person writing to the multiple points of view, right? Like, I can imagine it's difficult. Well, it's challenging, and that's the fun of it. You know, that's the fun. That's the creative part of it. It's um, learning new things as a writer so you don't get stale. Yeah. And then um, the one of the, the things that, especially in books now that um, I don't, it's not as much as a backdrop or like a conversation that happens um, with uh, the AIDS epidemic being part of like the backdrop for this book. Um, uh-huh. It's... I've only read, I want to say, in the time that I've been doing the podcast, two or three books. This might be the third or fourth book that has that um, that included in it. And it's it's interesting because it's, it's oh, the way that I've read it, it's been handled very well. Um, and I'm sure that there are books that don't handle it with any sort of grace. But um, was it what was that experience like writing uh, something that is you know, looking back at it and using it in a book now? So, um, it was really an interesting experience for me because obviously I lived through that era mm-hmm. and um, I have first-hand knowledge of the epidemic and I lost friends to it. And partly it was, it was a little painful to go back and relive that time. Mm-hmm. But it was also interesting because when I was writing the Rios books during the epidemic and, and AIDS runs through most of them, I was like, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Mm-hmm. You know, I did not know that there were going to be these treatments that would essentially, that would keep people alive. I mean, we, we thought that pretty much everyone was going to die. So um, now I know how it turned out. Yeah, because so it's... it's a very different perspective than when you're in the trenches. Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, my, my, my mom, uh, studied, um, HIV and AIDS. Uh, I believe, I feel like she wanted to be a doctor at some point. Um, and she wanted to learn how to best help people. Um, and it's a conversation we have like consistently about how far, you know, different medicines have come. I remember I was talking to my, my doctor cause I was interested in going on prep and it's it, it's nice to be able to have an open conversation with my parents about that and it not uh-huh. be like a weird thing. And he, I, it was like a couple of years ago and he was like, what? My doctor didn't know what prep was. And I had to explain it to him. And he was like, this is a Your thing doctor? that exists. Yeah, it's because it was like a, okay, a, a while ago. OK. Yeah. But um, I remember I, I, I opened that conversation to him and he's like, I don't have many openly gay patients so it's not something that i normally get to like do like look into so Uh he was also very interested in that um and it's it's the you know the medicines are very different now like you were saying yeah well um yeah because i'm i just started this week writing the next rios book which is a follow-up to carved in bone Mm. so it takes place in 1986 Mm mm-hmm and um, that's right at the dawn. And, and one of the interesting things about going back to that period is like, so after this moment of despair in the community, people just got organized. Yeah. And part of the being organized was people were, they were looking for medicine, for medical treatments outside of the U.S. that weren't approved by the U.S. So there are people smuggling in these drugs from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and distributed them. You know, it's like the Matthew McConaughey movie, The Buyer's Club. Oh, yeah. So that's what was going on back then. And so med- the medicines have vastly, vastly improved. It's, it's, uh, well, I can't believe your doctor didn't know about prep. Where do you live? <laughs> <laughs> I live in New Jersey. He's, he's uh, like I said, I don't, I don't necessarily fault him for that um, because it, it was, when did I move home? I want to say I moved home, and and granted, like, yeah, you should still be up on something like that. But when we were talking about it, and he was like, I don't really have many patients like you um, who are, like, you know, like young, openly gay men. And I think I was maybe 25 when I moved back home. Uh-huh. Um, and 
he he's just been the doctor I've had my whole life. Um, and uh, I know that I need to find a different doctor because he's going to retire soon. So I'm going to need to find a new one regardless. But uh, I remember having the conversation with him and I was like, do, do you normally get introduced to new medicines by your own patients? <laughs> well, you know, you did the you did the service for other other patients you might see in that circumstance. That's true. Um, he was he was su- like super excited about it. Yeah, uh, well, he was a, a military doctor in the eighties, and he told me he's like I haven't had to. Like I haven't had conversations about you know HIV or AIDS in a in a while actually. I was yeah. like, yeah, I mean, like I don't really have I don't know what else to talk to you about, but like there's this thing. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the um, this is a little tangent, but um, one of the interesting things about the epidemic was that it really changed how doctors and patients relate because the um, AIDS activists were very adamant that patients should take a, um, a very assertive role in their treatment, mm-hmm. that they should question their doctors, um, you know, and so this whole notion of patient advocacy, of patients having their own agency and not just being passive recipients of medical treatment, that's all because of AIDS. That's all because of the response to AIDS by the queer community. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of what... The queer community has done that has rippled out that is just, I, I would say, normal now. Um, yeah. And that, you know, I, being able to have an open conversation with my doctor and say, like, well, I don't feel comfortable taking these kinds of medicines anymore. Like, I remember right. there was a point in time where I told him I, I no longer wanted to be on medication for ADHD when I was in uh-huh. high school. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I felt like I was able to do it. And it wasn't like a weird thing because it's, it was normalized in the, you know, I, you know, by, you know, 2009, I could tell my, you know, have a conversation like, no, this is not what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, um, because of the AIDS activists, really. I never thought of that. See, this yeah. is, a, and this is the thing with my age group too. Um, not a lot of, there are people who obviously talk about uh, the importance of, I know this isn't specifically about your book, but uh, there are a lot of people my age that I feel like gloss over this entire part of our history, which is, you know, the backdrop to this book. And it's not something that like, because they don't have firsthand experience with it, or there are people who don't, you know, do research on it. It's, it's something that's like, oh, well, we don't have to think about this anymore. It's like, no, it's still prevalent, and we do still need to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, the other reason I wrote, I mean, the other reason I was inspired to write this book was because what people your generation are going through now with the Trump administration mm-hmm. and seeing really a contraction and an assault on queer rights, I mean... You have your own battle. You're going to have your own battle to fight. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted this book just to remind people that, yeah, we've been through dark times before. You know, it's, um, Yeah, especially with uh, the, the the part in the book where Billy says who he voted for and said, well, he was for bi- you know businesses. And I'm like, oh, God, I've literally heard that before from queer people who voted for Trump. And it's like, oh, he's for businesses. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Right. Yeah, so that doesn't change, sadly. No. <laughs> and it was, it was just an interesting uh, comparison to now, especially. But um, so also, I just, <laughs> while you're here, um, yeah. I wanted to thank, uh, I don't, how do you know Michelle Carlsberg? Oh, my God. You know, Michelle, I go back 30 years. I've just, I've, we've known each other for 30 years, just from, you know, the, the queer literary scene. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, I'm really glad that she was very like uh, forceful with me because not forceful in a bad way, but like stayed on my ass because, um, yeah, exactly. And it, it, it really December, like I said, is such a terrible month for me that I let so many balls drop. And she was like, no, you're going to be talking to Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I just wanted to ask while I had you with, uh, with me for a second. Um, so, 
you're right. You're writing the next Henry book as we speak. Yeah, yeah. I just started this week. Actually, I'm up to chapter four. Wow, that's amazing. What do you so? What um is it going to be like a um is it it takes place after this? You said. Yeah, it takes place a couple of years after this. Okay. And, um, it takes place in Los Angeles, where Rios is relocated. Mm-hmm. And in 1986 in California, you know, you know, there was this measure on the ballot, and it would have allowed local counties to actually quarantine people who are HIV positive, basically to lock them up in the concentration camps. Oh. And that actually qualified for the ballot. I mean, there were actually, there were three of them. And so this was the first one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can imagine how, how how gay people felt about this. You know, they're, they're coming after us. They're going to lock us up and put us in these concentration camps. So, um, so that's kind of part of the story is Rios gets involved in the effort against this initiative. Part of it is about these... AIDS activists who are smuggling drugs in from Mexico, you know, that have some, have been shown to have some value in treating AIDS, but which are not yet approved by the federal government. Um, I want to say that Carved and Bone is kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's a tough story and it's about the hopelessness of the epidemic, but the next book is about the resistance. Mm -hmm. It's about the means of the resistance. Yeah, because uh, the the topic of this, I mean, obviously both stories sound extremely serious, um, but it was a like it's weird to say a joy reading this book because of the the heaviness of it. But it was um, reading about you know the you know, especially the relationship that he has with Larry. Um, that was like such a a great relationship. Also, Billy's relationship with uh, Mrs. Donahue. Yeah, I loved her. <laughs> um, I, I would, I want to like, I want a person like that in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I'm actually, I'm glad that you enjoyed the book because it's not a history, and you know, I, I think that as a writer, I have a responsibility, whatever I'm writing about, however serious subject matter is, it's like to entertain the readers, you know, yeah, to give them to give them a reason to want to turn the page. That's, I take very seriously. So, yeah, I, you know, and I mean, there's, a, there's you know, a fair amount of humor. I mean, Henry's kind of a funny person in some ways. He's mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really try with the writing to, to entertain. I mean, you know, this novels are supposed to entertain people. Yeah, and the, especially with uh, coming from where, like, I've read so many different YA novels, the lang- like the language that's used, and also like the characters themselves. I feel like in certain, in reading a book about adults, like an adult life, um, you know, obviously Bill Billy was a young kid when he went over to San Francisco, but you know Henry is a a, a full blown adult, and it's interesting to, you know, read about an adult who is you know looking into this young person's life who is, uh, you know, a recovering addict. It was just, none of it felt like, I don't want to say cringy, but like, it, it, it was obviously like a hard subject, a hard book filled with like subjects, obviously, but uh, it was uh, it was interesting to read and I really appreciated the different relationships that were in the book. I especially loved that, you know, a very feminine, like, queen, like Waldo, took in a very close my I, I would consider Billy to be more close minded um person and I, I like that, you know, Waldo is like, yeah, you know what, like these people kicked me like, you know, threw me out of their lives and I'm going to build myself up and be the person that I want to be and you don't have to be like them. Yeah, I love Waldo too, actually. Well Waldo was my favorite. <laughs> yeah. I I think he's my favorite too and I had so much fun writing him. Because um, I've known sassy queens like that. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and back then it was, to be a sassy queen back in the day, it was a little harder than it is today. You had really to bad. have, you know, you had to have balls to be like that. Yeah. It's like, I like, I think Waldo says at one point to uh, Billy, yeah, 
being a fag ain't for sissies, you know? And, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and he means it because uh, he takes a lot of abuse, but he just he just turns it around and gives it back to the people who um, try to abuse him. Yeah, it's... So, uh, and he's, you know, he's Billy's hero. And Billy's a very straight-acting, conventional, what we would now call heteronormative guy. Mm-hmm. But his hero is like this this um, sassy queen. And isn't that the truth for the gay community in general? It is actually the 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 trans the trans people the, the sassy queens they're the ones who led the revolution back in '69. So mm-hmm. we all need to be grateful for them. No, and that's them. that's the thing that I think. Uh, we we're aware of but we it's like brushed under the rug it's like yes we need to thank these feminine queens but it's like we don't want any part of them in our lives and it's like no that's not how this works yeah i know (laughs) but um trying to think of like another question i'm just like i uh, there was a good question on your good your uh goodreads i normally try not to think of uh, like go to someone's Goodreads, like look at questions, um, because Goodreads is sometimes a hellish landscape that shouldn't be looked at. Yeah, I rarely look at it myself. I, I've so many authors have uh, spoken to me about how they go to look at Goodreads and they they immediately immediately feel dread. Yeah, I don't read the reviews on Goodreads or Amazon. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> just I think it's just like a. I don't see any, but like I, I, I wouldn't. I for me, I can't think of stuff like that. Like if I ever, obviously, very, very different. If I ever post something to like Instagram, I try not to think of like the comments or who's looking at it. Yeah, because uh, it'll drive you crazy. If you're right, it's hard enough to write a novel without having fifty voices in your head telling you, you know, what you should have done differently. It's like, okay, well, thanks for sharing. I've been doing this for thirty years. I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Um but there was it looks like had you considered not making any more Henry books at one point? Yeah, so when I wrote the the seventh one in two thousand, which was called Rag and Bone, mm-hmm. I actually said, Okay, this is it, I'm done. And I thought I was done, mm-hmm. but it turns out I wasn't. <laughs> Henry wasn't I, done with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I didn't kill him off. You know, that would have been hard to explain. <laughs> <laughs> Are there were there any other like authors that inspired you to do work like this? So I was directly inspired by a writer named Joseph Hansen, mm-hmm. and Joe Hansen actually wrote the first gay mysteries. His first book was published in 1971. Mm-hmm. It's called Fade Out. And he had, his detective was like this openly gay male insurance investigator. Mm-hmm. And he wrote 12, Joe wrote 12 books. Uh, he was, we were friends in LA when I lived there. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was in law school and I started reading his books, and I thought, and it, they were a revelation to me because back in the seventies, most gay fiction was about these doomed drug addict queens living in New York. Who like, and I thought, well, you know, that's kind of interesting, but I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, not my. This is not the life I aspire to. I'm not Joe's book, where yeah, here's this confident adult gay man. Mm-hmm. who's doing this job and I thought yeah that's kind of who I want to be so he was my direct inspiration mm-hmm. yeah because I, I like that in this book uh, Henry's uh, taking on the guise of an insurance investigator and he's normally uh, a lawyer so at one point he's talking to I think Adam I think it is and he's like I'm like in over my head right now and I was yeah. like, why are you doing this kind of work? I thought you were a lawyer. And it's like, I oh, moonlight is this. But it's it's so different than what I'm used to that I'm having a difficult time with it. Yeah, because at the beginning of the book, you know, he's, he's just out of rehab for alcoholism. Mm-hmm. He's been sober for three months. His law practice was destroyed by his addiction. And, you know, he needs a job. So. Yeah. So someone offers him this job, and he says doesn't really have much choice in the matter. 
And that was also my personal homage to Joseph Hansen, because his hero was an insurance investigator. So this is just me paying my dues to the generation before me. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I don't. The the other author's name was uh, Joseph. You said Joseph Hansen, H A N S E N. Ah, yeah, because um, that's a that's another you know author that I'm unaware of, and it's the nice thing about this podcast is that I'm being introduced to so many queer authors and people who you know use their voice to tell queer stories, and it's it's been very enlightening and very interesting to you know have the different conversations with people who you know you're an actual lawyer so to like i'm sure that you've imbued your knowledge into your work uh with henry oh yeah i was a prosecutor so i was actually a trial lawyer a first-hand experience of that and Mm -hmm. um that was very helpful so there's an online publication called the los angeles review of books Mm -hmm. and i wrote a long essay about Joseph Hansen for them if you're interested in looking at that sometime um, because he was a very important writer back then not just a gay writer but a mystery writer and um, his books were out of print so they're coming back in print this year I'm glad to see he's a beautiful writer he's really a beautiful writer mm-hmm. yeah because uh, especially with uh, mystery novels because uh I haven't really like uh, found as many as I would like to, and I'd like I'd love to. I now have to start collecting the Henry books because I had such a good time reading this, and it was uh, very different from the other books that I've read that were queer mysteries. And Henry is such an interesting character, and I th- and you know as I talked about the you know the the comparison between Henry and Bill. Uh, was just so interesting, and especially with the backdrop. Um, and I, I really, I'm sorry, I'm just saying this out of nowhere, but I really appreciated the book. Well, you know, um, you'll have to after we finish talking, you'll have to text me your snail mail address, and I'll send you the first one. Oh my gosh, yes, thank you. I'll, I'll sign it and send it to you. Oh my god, that would be great. Thank you. I'd love to do that, actually. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Michelle sent me. I feel so bad. She said, like, when she was, uh, I guess she uh, reached out to get the book sent over to me. Um, <laughs> she, uh, like, emailed me, like, once a week, and she's like, Do you have the book yet? And I'm like, I, I, I have no books that have been sent to me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that was a problem on my end because I forget what the problem was, but it was a problem with the printing. It took me a while to get copies of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you you started reprinting the Henry books yourself, right? Right. So once I got the rights back to my books a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. rather than license them to a big publisher, I decided to start my own press and to republish them myself because you know I wanted to control them. So yeah, so I've been slowly. So actually, this month I just released the last two of the original seven. So. All of the books are now back in print. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it took me about a year to do it. Is um, that is the uh, Persigo Press yours? Persigo Press is my press. That's so cool. And um, I, I thought I was I wanted to publish other queer writers through that. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is like there's a lesbian press called Bywater Books, and they just started an imprint called Amble Press where they're going to publish, you know. Queer writers, male, trans guys, non-binary people, and they asked me if I would be editor of their imprint. So I'm just this week, uh, I became the editor of Amble Press. So um, yeah, I'm especially interested in publishing millennial writers. So if there are any of you out there, <laughs> I hope they're listening because they better be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amble Press, go go to look up Amble Press and uh, send your books. Yeah, definitely. If y'all better do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, and it's. So, are you going to continue with uh, doing work with your press and their press? So, I'm going to maintain my press and mm-hmm. uh, continue to publish my books through it, and uh, publish other people's books through um, their press. 
So, yeah. So, and at some point, I might go back to Prosigo and publish um, writer, other writers of color who aren't necessarily queer because they also need publishers. Yes. Latinx writers, African American writers. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how much energy I have and how long I, and you know how much longer I have to live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an old man. You're from what I've read. You're only in your very early sixties. I'm sixty-five, but you I'm sound just, very youthful. I'm starting a third career as a publisher and an editor, so I'm very, very, and I'm very excited about it. Yeah, and I, I can imagine that um, do, doing the work that you've done, which uh, you're a six-time Lambda Literary Award winner, and the I don't know this one, the Bill Whitehead Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah, so there's a, a group called Publisher Triangles, which is basically queer professionals who work in the publishing industry, editors, agents. Michelle's probably a part of it. Mm-hmm. And they have a group called Publishing Triangle, and every year they give out this Lifetime Achievement Award to um, a gay or lesbian writer, mm-hmm. and they alternate it. So it's gone like, I think Allen Ginsberg's one of their people, and Adrian Rich, the poet. So, yeah, they gave me that award you know, a long time ago when I was still in my 40s, and I told them... Um, I, a lifetime achievement award. I'm still alive. <laughs> this may be premature. Well, it's like the it's like the Vanguard Award for the MTV VMAs. Like, it's yeah, but obviously yeah, I, more important than that. Well, you know, it was it was a great honor, and unlike most literary awards, it actually came with a check, and I was like, oh, thank you. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel, I mean, I've the only award that I have won was uh, like when I graduated, I won best portfolio for my photo work, um, and that came with a cigarette tin. I don't oh. know what my director of photography at my school is thinking, but he handed me a tin. He's like, "You can use it for business cards or for cigarettes," and I was like, "Thank you, <laughs> I love this." Yeah, no, well, okay, that's a little odd. <laughs> I think he thought I smoked, and I was like, no, I'm very boring. I don't smoke cigarettes. Thanks. <laughs> maybe he was encouraging you to pick up the habit. Yeah, know? maybe. <laughs> but um, where can I listen to the, the Henry Rios podcast? It's on all the platforms. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. It's, you know, all the usual places. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's called the Henry Rios Mysteries Podcast. Yeah, it was fun. You know, it, I, I, it wiped out my savings. It, it was like, it was almost $40,000. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> Sophie and I, I do our po- Obviously, yours had actual people in it. Uh, Sophie and I, uh, we only like pay for like the platforms that we use and for any right. of the books that we get. Um, and even that is expensive and this is like a little indie podcast i can imagine something with the production quality that i'm imagining this podcast has uh that you did uh it's very expensive yeah it was very expensive um but it was a lot of fun and uh i'm glad i did it i'm really glad i did it and i met some great people the actors were fantastic so i'm very excited to listen to it uh, it's a big cast. I think I ended up with like about a dozen actors. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because if you think, like, I'm sitting here thinking about how many people Henry met in this book. Like, right. so many. So many. Yeah. And I really wanted to do Carved and Bone as a podcast, but, um, you know, now that audio has preempted me, I, I guess we'll just have to wait for Audible's version of it. Yeah. I'm, uh, it's. Is the person that they picked to do Henry's voice, like, is he going to be doing all of them? Yes, he is, Tom Rivera. And, um, so when I signed with Audible, my only request was, look, uh, the narrator has to be Latino. He has to be. Yeah. That's, and they were like, oh, totally. He, they said, you get to pick him, you know. Oh. We'll send you, you know, you, we'll send you their audition tapes, and you can choose your narrator. So that's cool. Me, yeah, it was cool. They sent me Tom's audition tape, and I thought, yeah, he's perfect. I'm glad that that was the stipulation for you because you know, especially with this, this is such a specific voice. Uh, it would it would have been a shame if it wasn't someone who shared that voice. Yeah, and Tom and I had long 
we had a pretty long conversation about what he sounded like. Because mm-hmm. when you listen to the podcast, Armando Ray, who does Henry on that podcast, you can tell he's Latino. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's American-born, but there's kind of an accent there. Mm-hmm. And so Tom and I were discussing, you know, how heavy Henry's accent should be. And I said, well, you know, he's not an immigrant, but um, mm-hmm. there are definitely some inflections that are specific to Mexican-American speakers. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting working with um, a vo- these voice actors. They're great. Yeah, because I'm sitting here, like, when I read a book, because Sophie and I talk about the, the audiobook so often, and, like, uh, if they're doing, like, a woman's voice, like, how the inflection is, and, like, right. if they're doing an accent, like, do, is there a different person doing it, or if they're doing it? And I'm sitting here thinking, like, oh, now I wonder, like, I wonder what this person's voice sounds like. Yeah, I wonder how he's going to do Mrs. Donahue, who's an old Irish widow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That shouldn't be too hard to do. <laughs> yeah. But um, I feel like I'm like all out of questions because I feel like I'm just a little starstruck. Um, oh, well, <laughs> don't, don't be. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, of course. And I mean, I will say about Mrs. Donahue that the whole, you know, there's the, the church in the book. Mm-hmm. And that whole group of elderly Irish widows who took in gay guys in the 70s. Yeah. That's actually based in fact. There is a. Oh, that's a real thing. Yeah, here in the Castor, there's a Catholic church called Most Holy Redeemer, mm-hmm. and it's right in the heart of the Castro. And in the late seventies, there was a priest there uh, who actually he would go to gay bars. He would talk to guys and he'd say, you know, if you're Catholic, you can come to our church. You know, we're welcoming. Mm-hmm. And um, so he brought. It turned into a largely gay congregation, so it was like young gay men and old Irish widows were the congregation at this church, and they really got along well. So, um, I'm so imagining my mother in like however many years at a church like that, and I feel like she would fit right in. It was, you know, it was just one of those rare, rare moments when um, two groups you would never think had anything in common, came together and formed these really deep and intimate bonds. And some of those old ladies cared for these boys as they were dying. Mm-hmm. Um, they did, in fact, start this hospice across the street from the church for for the young guys who um, were dying of AIDS. It's a really it's an incredible story. One of the many, many stories that's going to get lost which is why I wanted to preserve it, or at least a trace of it in this book. Yeah, because re- in reading this, I I loved her character so much, and I know that there were people who were accepting, obviously, but to have an you know an, an more mature like old, like older woman, uh, you know, you know, have such a beautiful relationship with these kids, uh, and that's what they they were kids, you know. It it it's really beautiful and I sat there and I said you know I'm sure this exists but it just it seems like something that like because I love it so much it's pure fantasy no uh, not at all <laughs> that, I, that, I think not like that is probably my favorite thing from the book now and <laughs> <laughs> um, you know and I love the fact that she and Waldo bond over old movies because <laughs> That is one of the that is one of the bonds that they had. You know, the Castro Theater is famous for showing retrospectives of old movies, and so um, it, they would have gone there together to watch Betty Davis movies. I love that. You know, my my uh, brother lived in on Knob Hill. My brother uh, James is a lawyer, and he lived in San Francisco for like three years, I think. Uh-huh. And I went to visit him, and James is straight, and I, you know, I, you know, I guess straight people can live in San Francisco, um, <laughs> and uh, I went to visit him, and I went, I like, I remember I got off the the subway, and I like got out, and I was in the Castro, and I didn't know, it, and I was like, am I in the right spot? And I like turned around, and there's the ginormous rainbow flag, and I'm like, oh yeah, my people are here, right. Right, the flag and the Castro Theater sign are the two icons of the neighborhood. Yeah, it was it was truly beautiful. Yeah, it's been it's been the neighborhood for since the early seventies, and 
that's partly what I wanted to capture too in Carved in Bone was a sense of how the neighborhood, what it was like in the early 70s when it was first being transformed from an old Irish working class neighborhood to this, you know, this Oz neighborhood of, you know, young gay men. Mm-hmm. You know, I was reading, I was sitting there, like, I closed my eyes for a second, and I, like, thought back to my, like, walking through the streets and the shops and the, like, you know, the, the smaller shops with, uh, you know, the little indie stores that were just really cool to see, and the, you know, the bars and the clubs and seeing just people out in the open, you know, being, you know, themselves. It was great. You walked past some of the places I described in the book. And I didn't even know it then. <laughs> uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, you walk past the restaurant where um, Bill takes Nick when Nick falls drunkenly into his arms. I, uh, the tr- and their, their story together, it, it was not, like, it was so different than what I was expecting. Also, the ending, obviously, didn't see... I'm so bad with mystery novels, I can never you know, do the thing beforehand where I'm like, oh, I know what's about to happen. And it, I, I'm that person that until the very end when it's like something is explained finally, I'm like, oh shit, this is a thing. Like I, I'm so bad at it. Well, that's good. You're the kind of reader that mystery writers like. I don't like <laughs> the smart asses who spend the whole novel trying to figure out, you know, who did it. It's like, relax, I'll explain it to you. Just enjoy the book. Just let me take you on this journey. Yeah, I like being taken on a journey. I like, I'm that person. Yeah, me too. I love, yeah, I love getting lost in in the book. Yeah, because it's, that's what the book's there for, man. Shut your brain off. It's true. Take you out to another space. Yeah, and it's, uh, it was really nice, especially because, uh, my, my dad was in the hospital the past uh, week and a half. Um, he had pneumonia, and he's he's uh, had heart surgery, so it sets off his the oh, issues. Yeah. yeah, so like reading this and like letting my mind relax and read something that was like enjoyable to read was very nice. Came at a very oh, good time. <laughs> good. Your, your your dad's okay now. Oh yeah, he's fine now. He's home now. Um, but it, it was just very. He is um, kind of the glue in our family. Uh-huh. Um, as I think for most people, their parents are, and uh, yeah, it's true. Your dad sounds like a great guy. He's uh, he's uh, he's very much the reason I am the way I am. He was when I came out. I was afraid that he wasn't going to be the one that was accepting, and he was perfectly fine. Uh huh. And uh, he's always been so. Like, if I ever bring a boyfriend home, he always finds a way to interact with them and be nice. Like. I honestly wish that every kid who's, like, afraid of coming out could have a dad like mine, because he really made it easy for me. Yeah, that's great news, you know. Yeah. That's wonderful. I like those stories, because it wasn't always like that. <laughs> no, and that and that's the thing. You know, he told me, he he's a retired federal agent. He told me about, you know, really? some of his, yeah, he has cool stories. He told me about, like, some of his coworkers that, like, they would be homophobic and then one of their kids would come out and they ha- they it's like okay it's either you stop that shit or you lose your right. kid and it's just like right. you know miss donahue she doesn't understand why you would throw a kid away for that yeah you'd think it would be an easy choice but um there are a lot of bill stories in my generation you know yeah but uh i i think if i like if i sit any here longer with you i might just start blabbering about things that make no sense <laughs> Well, we'll we'll call it a day. I'm really, I'm I'm so grateful to talk to you. Oh, I'm honest. Anytime anyone says that to me, I'm like, first of all, no. I'm grateful <laughs> you had, like, that you had time to talk to me. It was such a fun time and getting to you know talk to someone that's had such a, a cool career of writing you know queer mysteries that you know have so much representation in them it's it's a joy to be able to talk to you cool yeah all right (laughs) so uh thank you for listening everyone my name is brennan patrick and i have michael neva here with me and you are listening to the super lit podcast